I didn't know anything about jazz at that particular point in time, but what I heard coming out of John Coltrane's saxophone was one of the most earnest sounds that I have ever heard in my young life at that point. And it just grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. I said, what is this? This is Champagne is also a band podcast. One songwriter, one song. I'm Sven, your host for a journey into the music of Champaign-Urbana. Recorded in the Blue Box studio with a songwriter from the Champaign-Urbana music scene, past or present. Champagne is also a band podcast is proud to be a part of the Champagne Showers podcast network. you look at that it's bonus episode 18 can't remember the last time if ever i did a bonus episode after i did a bonus episode and a week later so this is exciting i got to talk with sean Kutzko about the shambana jazz archiving that he's doing about nature's table well you know what let's just get on to the interview it explains itself Welcome to Champagne is also a band podcast. Today, I have Sean Kutzko, and you may know Sean from shambanajazz.com, and also he plays in a band called Silverweed and the Groove Lemons. So, Sean, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. This is great. Excellent. So, normally we would listen to a song, but this is a bonus episode, so we're going to actually talk about your project passion shambana jazz and i'm just curious so tell me a little bit about shambana jazz the whole purpose of shambana jazz is to document and record and disseminate the goings-on of the local jazz scene here in champaign urbana the primary way that i do that is i record live shows that are taking place at various venues throughout town. And then I post them on the website and distribute them, you know, with full knowledge and, and okay from the musicians, uh, and get them out to jazz fans and music fans here in town so they can hear what's going on. Excellent. You know, some of our pre-interview, you mentioned that you've been recording and documenting for the past 37 years. Is that correct? That's about right. Yeah. Wow. So how did you discover this passion or or how did it how did it begin so i've always been interested in audio i'm a radio geek i've always been interested in listening to radio from a very early age both music as well as seeing how far away i can receive radio stations from across country and around the around the world i'm a ham radio operator so all of that stuff came to me at a very early age and along with that came a tape recorder So Mm. I started recording things that I would hear on the radio, you know, going back to when I was five, six, seven years old, I would record music that I liked on various radio stations that I listened to and started doing skits and vignettes when I was a real young kid. And the idea of recording something and saving it for posterity was something that came to me very early on. And I've always been interested in recording stuff just to hold on to the memory of it, to have something to relive and experience by 
the music aspect of it started when I was about, well, I guess I would have been about 13 or 14 maybe. And the who was on their, their, their first farewell tour (laughs) back in uh, 1982. And their final concert was at the Toronto Maple Leaf Gardens. And it was broadcast via satellite and on radio stations all around the world. And there wasn't a local radio station here in town that was broadcasting the concert. So I had to listen to it on WLSAM out of Chicago, which back then was a music station that was 50,000 watt clear channel station. So you could hear it all across the country. At some point it occurred to me, wow, this is their last concert. I should record this. So Mm. I got you know, my little crappy tape recorder and I put the microphone right up to my radio speaker (laughs) and I recorded this whole thing. And you know, it, it was great to have a recording of it that I could listen to later, but the fidelity was pretty crappy, but I had this recording and I would listen to this all the time because it was a very good concert. I, I liked the who at that point in time. And, and it was just something neat to be able to have this memory, this little time capsule that I could listen to anytime that I wanted to. That stuck with me for a while. And then in high school, I got turned on to the Grateful Dead. The way that I got turned on to the Grateful Dead was through a friend of mine who collected live recordings of their concerts. Anybody who knows anything about the Grateful Dead understands that their music was disseminated through these live recordings that the band let the audience do. Hmm. So the band was totally okay with you recording their concerts and used it as a very primitive grassroots marketing tool. So all of these recordings were available of Grateful Dead concerts going back to the beginnings of their career, back to 1965, 1966. Mm. So as I became more enamored with the Grateful Dead, I started collecting more and more cassettes and listening to the variations that an improvisational music group could have from night to night, year to year. And at some point when I started to go see them in concert, I saw all of these microphones in the audience, all of these people that were recording the concerts. And then in October of 1984, the band formalized a recording area for each concert. So you could purchase a taper ticket for their concerts and bring in all of the gear that you wanted to and set up this vast array of microphones and extremely complex recording equipment to get a really, really good audience recording of a, of a concert. Huh? So I saw that and I said, Oh, that looks like fun. I want to do that. So in June of 1985, I started recording grateful dead concerts on occasion. Okay. Yeah. So that's how the live recording bug first came into being for me. I feel that personally, as someone who enjoys live concerts, who enjoys maybe mentally capturing a moment, it's amazing to me that The Grateful Dead, in in essence, really isn't a studio band because their concerts are, and, and I don't mean to be like kind of explaining this to you, but I, I feel like my, this is me processing my thoughts, but they are easily pigeonholed, I guess, as a jam band. And therefore, each concert is specifically different and will be specifically different than and will be a unique experience. 
I feel like also that dovetails very nicely with jazz because that's that is the staple is the improv solo, especially you know if we're going to talk about doing jazz standards, the thing that may set a band apart doing a jazz standard is during the solo portion. It's fascinating to think that capturing that moment is also so important to recognizing that that will never happen again. That moment will never happen exactly again. That is absolutely correct. And for those who don't know, um, the background of the musicians that were in The Grateful Dead, they come from very diverse backgrounds, but all of them have an interest in two forms of music. Going back to the late 50s, early 1960s, they were all of them were interested in bluegrass music and jazz music as well. So their roots, the music that they were playing when they were getting started was music that had an improvisational nature to it. So that is why it became so important to capture every performance of the band from a hive mind perspective. And mm. anybody and everybody in the community wanted to make sure that a concert was recorded because due to the improvisational nature of it, I mean, they, they would walk out on stage and not have a set list. They would huh. simply call tunes just like a jazz gig would huh. or a bluegrass gig. They would just say, okay, what are we doing tonight? That element of spontaneity is a rarity in the world of rock and roll. Uh, hmm. But that is de rigueur in the worlds of bluegrass and jazz. So they took that element from two completely distinct styles of music and incorporated that aspect of an improvisational approach to their concerts into the rock idiom. What was the tipping or the transition point where you started recording music here in Champaign-Urbana? Okay, so there were two major factors that occurred in the 1980s that made that a possibility. One was due to my interest in radio, I wanted to be a DJ. So I started volunteering at WEFT in the early or mid 1980s. My very first show was the day after I graduated high school in the summer of 1984. And I volunteered for morning drive. So I had to be there at 530 to get ready to go on the air at six. The Monday night overnight guy was an old grizzled gentleman whose name I have long forgotten. He played jazz all night long. And I walked in at 5.30 and introduced myself. And I'm a 16-year-old kid who, you know, brought my Led Zeppelin and Who records to play at 6 o'clock in the morning. And he introduced himself and he said, so, you know, what's, what's your deal, basically? <laughs> and I told him I liked The Grateful Dead and The Who and Led Zeppelin. And he looked at me and he goes, you ever heard of John Coltrane? said, no, who's that? Great saxophone player. Jerry Garcia loved John Coltrane. I'll be right back. And he went uh -huh. and he got a, a Coltrane record and he played it next on his show. And it was a 1961 release called Coltrane. It was a simply self-titled album and it featured John Coltrane's classic quartet. It's like the most famous quartet that John Coltrane ever had. And he played the first cut off of this tune, which is called Out of This World. And I didn't know anything about jazz at that particular point in time. But what I heard coming out of John Coltrane's saxophone was one of the most earnest sounds that I have ever heard in my young life at that point. And it just grabbed me by the scruff of the neck. I said, what is this? Mm. And I did my show and I played My Grateful Dead and Led Zeppelin and Who Records. 
And as soon as my show was done at nine o'clock, I grabbed that John Coltrane album and I went into one of the production studios at Weft and I listened to that. And I can safely say that my musical trajectory changed that day Hmm. because I had never heard anything like that before. And it was so incredible. And so I'll say the word earnest again, because I, that is really the most descriptive word I can think of to describe what I heard that day. It just, it was absolutely unbelievable. The doors opened for me into a universe I did not know exist. You switched over to jazz, but do you remember your first time recording a jazz show in Champaign-Urbana? Sure. So the the other thing that happened in addition to starting being a, a DJ at Weft was I started going to this club in town called Nature's Table. And for those who don't know, Nature's Table was around from September of 1979 to May of 1991 and it was a coffee shop it was a health food restaurant and it was uh, it was at 509 South Goodwin Street in Urbana it was on the it was across the street on Goodwin from the northwest corner of Cranert Center for the Performing Arts and it was this little dinky club seated maybe you know 7,500 people it was tiny and that's a parking lot right now. it is now the front lawn of i think it's the chemical sciences building i started going there because i was young and you could you could get a beer there even though you were underage and they had really really good <laughs> bread and sandwiches so i would start going there and hanging out and i got exposed to listening to jazz music there which again i really didn't know anything about at that point in time but there were a few groups that played there on a regular basis that really got my attention. And one of them was a quartet called Sorghum. And Sorghum Mm. was a jazz funk organization. They had a Hammond B3 organ, they had a guitar player, they had a drummer, and they had a tenor sax player. And every now and then there would be another horn that would sit in, maybe a trumpet or another saxophone or something like that. And these guys were playing just some of the grittiest, funkiest stuff I'd ever heard. And, you know, from a technical standpoint, I didn't understand what they were doing. Mm. You know, I played a little guitar at this point and I was starting to, you know, play some drums and stuff like that. So, you know, but I was still very much stuck in a rock idiom. But so I didn't, you know, I didn't know anything about jazz theory or any of that stuff. All I knew is that the music that these guys played got my attention because it made me feel good. And after hearing these bands at nature's table for a little while, I decided, you know, these guys are pretty good. I think I want to record them so I can take this home and listen to it and enjoy it at home. So I don't have to go to a gig all the time. I got a fairly decent recorder and a fairly decent microphone and I'm 18 years old and I decide I, I'm just going to start recording this stuff. So the first recording that I made was July 22nd, 1985 at a now defunct club on Neal Street called Raphael's. Sorghum was playing there that night. They had a regular Monday night gig at Raphael's throughout the summer of 1985. And I set up my recorder and I recorded this band and it just made me feel great. So that was the beginnings of all of this live music recording. How many recordings would you say you have at this point? Of local music? Yeah, let's go with just local music, because I'm sure if you say... Of local CU jazz music. Okay, yeah. so there's so we need to qualify this question a little bit more. Do okay. you mean recordings that I have done myself, or recordings that I have collected from other people? Ah, right. Well, I'm, I'm curious more about the recordings that you have done yourself. 
Recordings I've made myself going back to 1985 to the present day. I just recorded a show last night. I would say I have in the neighborhood of 200 to 250 recordings of jazz here in town. Okay. And then uh, your collection of recordings that are local, but from other people that have... That would put it in the neighborhood of five or six hundred. And people can find all this at the shambanajazz.com. Com? Well, not all of it. Okay. <laughs> I'm still in the process of, of transferring quite a bit of this material. So I need to make sure that I give credit where credit is due. Um, there's a gentleman in town who is a major part of the jazz community named Jeff Machota. Jeff Machota has been an air shifter on WEFT for 30 years. He's been doing a jazz program there every week for 30 some odd years. He worked at Nature's Table for a large chunk of the later 1980s. And in fact, I ended up working at Nature's Table for two years as well. So I got more and more involved with the musicians that were playing there on a regular basis. So that was one of the things that got me to recording more concerts at Nature's Table throughout the late 1980s. Other musicians were recording concerts themselves, primarily for their own use so that they could go back and review their performances and find out what worked and what didn't and use that to better their own musicianship. When Nature's Table was forced to close in May of 1991 so that the university could make room for a new building, the community was pretty upset. Nature's Table was kind of a hub of the jazz scene, the folk scene, the alternative, not just hippie, but alternative community. It was it was a focal point in the community of for those kinds of folks, you know, mm-hmm. people who were interested in good food, good music. You know, back then there were there were kind of two major camps in the music scene in Champaign-Urbana. There was the Mabel's crowd, who was all about the rock and roll. And then there was the Nature's Table crowd, who were all about jazz and folk Mm. and other forms of music like that. And I was very firmly in the Nature's Table camp. I saw plenty of shows at Mabel's, played there several times. I identify myself as a Nature's Table person. When Nature's Table closed, a lot of people in the community were real upset. And over the course of time, Jeff Machoda and I started slowly gathering as many recordings as we could find that were made at nature's table because we both worked there. We both saw a lot of shows there and it was important to us to try to hold on to this stuff. We didn't know what we were going to do with it, but we wanted to make sure that it didn't go away. And eventually in 2014, Jeff Machoda and I started a website called naturestable.net. Naturestable.net was originally started by one of the great trumpet players here in town, Jeff Helgeson, who used that website to catalog as many of the recording dates as possible. Jeff Helgeson and Jeff Machoda had access to all of the monthly flyers that Nature's mm-hmm. Table would put out. So they started a database and listed who played where on that night they posted photos of the menu that was you know the food that they served there which was a very like a whole foods kind of restaurant vegetarian fare stuff like that there was an established website of memories of this club that everybody in town loved but there wasn't any music and so eventually jeff helgeson decided that he didn't want to maintain that site anymore and asked if I wanted to take it over, and I took it over with Jeff Machoda in 2014, and that was when we started posting recordings that were made at Nature's Table. That website still exists. The focus on that website is only recordings that were made at Nature's Table. In the process of collecting all of these tapes that were made at Nature's Table from various musicians and other sources, we started getting recordings of jazz that was 
recorded in town, but not at nature's table. So what do we do with those? And we right. didn't have an answer for that. And we just kept accruing these tapes and sitting on them. And, you know, again, being archivists and collective folks, we just, we wanted to make sure that they were going to stay safe, but we didn't know what to do with them. We amassed a pretty decent collection. I would, I would have to say, honestly, that Jeff Machota amassed the primary collection of non nature's table recordings. And then I moved away for a while. I was out on the East coast for about 12 years working in nonprofit public relations and stuff like that. And I moved back to town in 2019. My folks are still in town. So I'd come back to visit every once in a while and I'd always bring my little recorder and I'd go to the iron post or some other place and I'd record some jazz. So I'd get a recording while I was in town and then COVID hit. I was back in town. I had all of this free time on my hands all of a sudden. And I got to wondering, what am I going to do with myself? Cause I've, I've got a lot of time. Right. So it took a little while, but in September of 2021, I decided, you know, I've got all these recordings of jazz that were made in town, but not at nature's table. I'll just start another website. So I started shambanajazz.com in September of 2021 and instantly started going out with better gear. I use a zoom H six now with a four microphone split. At this point I'm out recording two or three jazz shows a week and I'm, you know, mixing them and posting them to the website as fast as I can. Once I get the musician's permission, it evolved at that point from not just preserving the recordings and making sure that people could hear them. There soon evolved a purpose to research the history of jazz in Champaign-Urbana, which Mm -hmm. goes back to the late 1800s, depending on how you want to define jazz. So uh, that involved a lot of new research in the newspaper archives, to which I credit Paul Kotheimer for turning me on to the university newspaper archives. Thank you, Paul. I've known Paul for a very long time, and uh, this was just yet another gem that he has thrown my way over the course of time. I'm recording two or three jazz shows a week. I'm spending all of my free time researching the history of jazz in town on the in the newspaper archives, and I'm posting interesting stories and clippings that I can find. I'm discovering all of these national acts that came through town. What I quickly learned from talking to people and doing all of the research in the in the newspaper archives is because Champaign is so centrally located between three major cities, there were a lot of great national level musicians that rolled through this town. It makes so much sense that in the movie, Some Like It Hot, they mention that they're going to swing through Urbana, Illinois. That's right. I'm curious, what are the future plans for Shambana Jazz? Like, where do you see it growing? Much like jazz itself, I'm finding that the website shambanajazz.com is very improvisational in nature. This is a labor of love. You know, I don't really have anybody who's helping me with this. This is something that I do in my own free time. I have a full-time job. I have a partner that I need to make sure that I don't sequester myself too much from. I'm playing in two different bands, you know, so I need to work on balancing my time a little bit better (laughs) than I currently do. But the future of it, there have been a couple of shows that have rolled through town on a regional slash national level that... I had a little bit of a hand in helping promote. I would be interested in exploring getting involved as a promoter Mm. of shows that are rolling through town. I would definitely like to continue to find ways to 
transmit to places outside of Champaign, Illinois, just what we have to offer the music community and not necessarily just in jazz. I mean, anybody who listens to this podcast knows Champaign or Jan has got a very, very rich musical history. And I would like to see if some of that can be channeled into making Champaign a bit of a musical tourist destination. Hmm. You know, if we could get folks coming down from Chicago for some shows on a regular basis, or maybe up from St. Louis or Indy, something like that. I think that would be pretty cool if that could happen over time. But the bottom line for me is just documenting, documenting, documenting. I want to continue to record shows Mm. as best as I can. My focus has been on audio this whole time, but now I could easily see myself trying to transition into live streaming and video, but I don't have the equipment for that yet. Right. So that's, that would be something that would be fun to transition to. People may have a recording out there of of some jazz or if they they wanted to know any way that they could help is there a place that they could reach out to you or do you want them to reach out to oh you? absolutely um, i mean you know this is uh because i don't is, want to get you all of a sudden like just spam from all sorts of people oh but, boy no know. what a terrible problem that would be to have i mean you know? i mean uh it's uh it's important to me to try to preserve as many recordings of jazz in this community as i can find you know i have the ability to transfer cassettes i have the ability to transfer you know there have been a couple of reel to reels that have popped up from the 70s and early 80s i have the ability to transfer various forms of media but i certainly don't have access to every recording out there that was made i mean even if it's you know somebody's brothers cousins uncles band that played one night somewhere you know that's an important piece of history as far as i'm concerned any recording of jazz made in this town in my opinion deserves to be preserved and if approved listened to by lots of people yes and and certainly that approval is very important absolutely we you know the respect of the performers as well as you know people that put a lot of effort into making it happen. Should someone be concerned if the recording isn't the greatest quality? Are you interested in even stuff that may not be the greatest quality? I'm just curious Mm -hmm. if, if there's a, if there's a level of quality that you're seeking or is it? I will accept uh, recordings of anything because through my experience with collecting grateful dead tapes, as well as other live music tapes of rock and jazz and folk and bluegrass throughout the years there may be something of great historical significance that occurs on a tape even though it may not be the highest quality now my interest of course is going to be try to capture a a performance in as great of fidelity as i can possibly get or process and do post-production on uh, cassettes that are sent to me and make them sound as good as i can possibly make them You know, generally speaking, I try to put out the best sounding stuff that I have access to. That's not always the case. One of the tapes from Jeff Machota's collection is the U of I Jazz Band from 1974, July. I think it's like July of 1974 at Trinos, which is where Espresso Royale on Oregon Street is now. The fidelity of that recording is not particularly great. But the historical value of that recording is through the roof because it contains several musicians who are now on jazz faculty at the University of Illinois. That aspect of the recording is critical. I don't have anything of those caliber of musicians who went on to become 
faculty at the U of I from that time period. That's the only recording of that stuff I have. Do you have any plans to create physical media of these archives at all? I would say no. I am more interested in simply making sure that there is a digital copy of this that is available. I'm not interested in making money off of this. This is That's not my goal. My goal is more of, I would say, an academic archivist than somebody who's looking to profit off of this. This is mm. not my music to sell, so I don't feel ethically comfortable with making physical product i don't know i maybe you know maybe i need to get the 80s and 90s out of my head but i also there's <laughs> there's this whole to have something historical in physical form somehow gives it a certain potency or or a or i, I mean even if it is like as a token there's this connection that you have with it being a physical thing and that's that's partially where my mind was at when i asked that so right. i was i was curious you know curious if that was something but so i mean that's that's an interesting point but the way things have evolved now i don't have a physical artifact of the performances that i record now everything's completely digital right so there's there's no physical medium uh right. now you know recovering the recordings from the past those are generally cassettes there's an interesting juxtaposition of of media there i certainly still enjoy getting a hold of a good cassette yeah you know and, and like playing with it i you know i the, all of the recordings i got started off with you know i recorded on cassettes for years uh, the idea of physical media is you know i'm not opposed to it by any stretch of the imagination i just think that due to the improvisational nature of the performance my more academic approach to it and the fact that now I'm recording 100% digital, I like the idea of simply posting the recording with no media middleman, as it were, and right. simply just putting it out on the internet and saying, here you go, folks, enjoy it or not. Right, right. Well, and that's very Library of Congress of you. Well, that, that actually, that's one of the things that I have, I don't want to say I modeled shambana jazz after the library of congress but that is definitely something that i admire about them is just i'm not interested in putting out one or two songs from a performance oh you know we did surrey with the fringe on top and it was really really great put that out there you know i'm i'm not interested in that i want to put out the entire concert i want to put out the entire show all of my recordings that i post have you know, all of the two or three minute chatter between songs where the band mm, members are trying right. to figure stuff out. You know, I want the historical document of this is what happened on this date at this club. And here's the whole thing for mm. you to hear warts and all. Uh, what is your usual method of recording when you go into a venue? Like I'm, I'm curious as to even your mic setup and, mm -hmm. and where you, you know, how are things placed and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. I'm going to geek out a little bit, but please let me know how that, how do you, how do you make that work? Sure. As of now, by far, the most recording I'm doing is at the Rose Bowl. Since the Iron Post closed, the Rose Bowl has really stepped up in the community for not just jazz, but all forms of music. That's the hot spot in town right now. And to their credit, and much to my satisfaction, they have several jazz shows a week. And I'm very grateful to Charlie and Marty and all those folks for, 
for stepping up and filling that void. When I go into the Rose Bowl to record, I use the Zoom H6. I try to set up in the sweet spot as best as I can. So you've got the two PA columns on either side of the stage. Mm. So I try to triangulate the midpoint between the two PA columns. I've got a stereo microphone that I'll put up on a stand about seven or eight feet and I'll capture the feed off the main stacks. And then in addition to that, I'll run two additional channels off the Zoom H6 where I will have that at tabletop level, more or less in the sweet spot as well. And what I find is the higher microphone getting the, the sound off the stacks in the stage will capture a lot of the highs in the mid range. And then the lower microphone, which is the stock XY mic that comes with the uh, H6, yep. I get more bass response with that. So then I take those four channels and I mix them in my digital audio workstation and I work on the balance and add a little compression, add a little EQ and the results speak for themselves. Do you have a favorite jazz venue? It sounds like you're pretty happy with the Rose Bowl now. Are there some venues that from long since past that you really miss? Oh, well, Nature's Table will always be my favorite. I mean, having worked there for two years, having played there several times as a musician myself, not as a jazz musician, my time at Nature's Table coincided with me being a young man. I was in my late teens, early 20s. Life was a whole lot simpler back then. And being able to show up for work and pour coffee and make sandwiches in the afternoon and then stick around all day and catch jazz at night, I will always look back very fondly on those times. I was basically going to school at Nature's Table in the mid to late 1980s and learning about a whole new genre of music that I essentially didn't know anything about. So that time period for me is magic. I'll never be able to let go of what mm. nature's table gave to me. Outside of that, the Rose Bowl is definitely the hip spot in town. I moved away in 2004. So I saw a couple of shows at the Iron Post when it was around. I was out of town for the vast majority of its tenure. So I didn't see nearly as much music there as I probably could have. I saw a lot of great shows at Mabel's mm. when it was around. There are a couple of other places in the United States that I would have liked to have checked out. I was on the East Coast for 12 years and I never made it into New York City to go to the Village Vanguard, which is the legendary uh. jazz club. Every musician in the world of jazz has recorded a live album there. And I regret not making it down into the city to go there. Do you have a favorite moment or concert that you saw here in Champaign-Urbana? I'm just curious if there's one that specifically will be the thing that you reflect on is like, that was the best show. Wow. I know, tough one, right? That's a, that's a tough question. I mean, there's just been so much damn good music in this town over the years. Ah, let me think about that. I would say on the local level, Sorghum was the band and I recorded them at nature's table on April 5th of 1986. And that concert is posted on nature's table.net. That was one of the most unbelievable performances of a local mm -hmm. group I have I have seen that still stands out 35 years later as one of the best shows in town that I ever saw. For those of you who don't know, Sorghum was amazing. They were, in my opinion, they were the best band in town in the 1980s by far. Mm. 
that's a bold statement. How can I say this? Their guitar player was this guy named Chuck Tripp, and his fingers just flew up and down the neck with distorted brilliance playing jazz funk stuff that i have really never heard anybody play since he, he was, his his approach was incredible and he had he had a wonderful sense of of melody and harmony as well there were a few occasions where a local guitar player usually of the heavy metal variety who thought they were something would be taken to a sorghum show and plop down in the front row at nature's table and left with a very different perspective of what <laughs> guitar could be like right uh, that was always fun to see that happening mm. <laughs> there was another local band in town in the mid to late 80s named bantuku that was an african high life band led by a gentleman named oscar sule brema from ghana he was a master drummer from ghana and worked as the lead composer for the ghana broadcasting corporation for a long time and came over to the united states to be artist in residence at various locations throughout central illinois he ended up putting together a band called bantuku that played from 85 to i would say 87 or 88 with some of the best horn players in town at that point in time, as well as a couple of great rock performers as well. And they blew the roof off of the place every night. I have a recording of them from 1986 at Nature's Table, also at naturestable.net. And if you're interested in West African high life kind of music, you need to go listen to that recording. Usually like to ask my guests, do you have a favorite non-musical thing? Certainly. So I, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I've been interested in ham radio or amateur radio since I was a kid. I still experiment with that and enjoy that on a regular basis. There's something really neat about being able to transmit a radio signal without using the internet or a cell phone network and just throw a piece of wire up in a tree to use as an antenna and be able to communicate with people in Japan or Italy, just bouncing a radio wave off the atmosphere and having it reflect back down to earth i derive immense pleasure in that i am a baker so mm -hmm. i'm very interested in sourdough breads and especially artisan pizza living on the east coast i became very wise and hip to what is new haven style pizza which is a pizza style unto itself what makes something New Haven style? New Haven style pizza is cooked in a coal-fired oven. Takes about 60 seconds to 90 seconds to cook a pizza in that environment because the oven temperatures will get up to 1,000 or 1,100 degrees. It is characterized by charred crusts, thin crust, and very light and airy dough that's kind of crunchy on the outside but very chewy and tender on the inside. Mm. The de facto... New Haven style pizza is a white clam pizza, which is white clams, garlic, no sauce. It doesn't have like tomato sauce on it. It just uses uh, olive oil. Sometimes you'll find it with bacon, red onions, and hot pepper flakes. And uh, to me, coming from the Midwest where I grew up on Papadels and Garcias and thick crust pizza, that was a revelation to discover that there was thin crust pizza that was not only good but fantastic let's go back to your ham radio mm -hmm. do you want to share your call sign or no i am kx9x so how long have you been interested in ham radio part of the joy of ham radio is seeing how far away you can pick up a radio mm -hmm. signal from so i started listening to far away radio signals when i was about four 
at night, if, if you're not aware of this, the AM broadcast band, uh, during the day, you can pick up a signal, you know, maybe 50 or 100 miles away. But at night, there's a layer of the atmosphere called the ionosphere. It has different properties during the day versus during nighttime. And at nighttime, there is a layer of the ionosphere that disappears, that keeps AM radio signals during the day from transmitting very far. But at night, when this layer of the ionosphere disappears, AM broadcast signals can suddenly travel hundreds or thousands of miles away. Hmm. So here in Urbana, Illinois, I've listened to radio stations on the AM broadcast band as far west as California and Washington and as far east as Newfoundland, Labrador and Canada down in the Caribbean, stuff like that. So that's how I got started in it. Then a friend of my older brothers bought me a, a shortwave radio, and then I started hearing stuff from all the way around the world. And then one day I was tuning around on that. I was about seven or eight, and I discovered Morse code. Then I realized that you can talk to people. You don't just have to listen. And it yeah. took me a little while to get my knowledge of Morse code up to speed, but I finally got my ham radio license when I was about 13. Obscure question. Sure. What do you think the number stations are all about? Oh, man, there is no question in my mind. The number stations are definitely espionage related, sending out instructions to various freelancers, shall we say. (laughs) I don't pay too much attention to those anymore. I know they're still out there. You know, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist or anything like that, you know, but there's no question that that's, you know, that is being used for espionage. The first time I was made aware of it, it just, it creeped me out more than anything in that just this very strange, just numbers just being read off. Yeah. So, so for those who have never, who have no idea what we're talking about, get on the, get online and do a search for number stations. And all it is, is a very, very loud transmitted signal of It's usually a woman, but it could be a man as well. And it's just, they're just reading a series of five numbers over and over and over for about 15 or 20 minutes. And, you know, there's, there's no warning when these transmissions are going to start. They just pop up. And then you hear this woman saying four, nine, seven, three, eight, six, two, five, one, seven. You know, like stuff like that for yeah. tw- for 20 minutes. And it's just strange and very creepy, you know, and then they'll get done and the transmitter just stops transmitting and goes off the air. It's primarily in English. They're also out there in Spanish and Russian and a couple of other languages that escape me at the moment. But yeah, it's, it's definitely weird. You like to make sourdough bread. How did you get interested in that? Well, so actually that goes back to nature's table as well. So Uh nature's table, one of the things that nature's table was known for was their homemade bread. Mm -hmm. They made these wonderful, long submarine style sandwich loaves of bread, both white and whole wheat. Think like a subway sandwich loaf, except, um, better, way better. (laughs) (laughs) And about two or three times as wide nature's table had a sandwich that they were known for called the gondolette which was basically a giant submarine sandwich with this loaf of bread that was about 16 inches long and they would pile meats and cheeses and toppings and all that kind of stuff on it it was you know like that was what you ordered when you went to nature's table i wanted to learn how to make that bread they published a cookbook and i dabbled with it here and there over the years and then when i was out east in the like 2010 2011 i got serious about it because Mm. it was when jeff machoda and i were starting to first 
try to assemble all of the nature's table cassettes that we could get our hands on. And I became very, very nostalgic for the food. And I broke out the, a PDF of the cookbook that they had published many years ago. And I started working on trying to make the bread mm. and I got, you know, there were, there were some pretty bad loaves of bread there when I first started out, yeah. you know, I honed the recipe and figured out what some of the secrets were to make it and got started in that. Then I branched out into making pizza and then I moved here to town in 2019 and I decided I was going to set up a sourdough starter and learn all there was to learn about sourdough bread. And so now again, you know, COVID really helped out with that because <laughs> had a right. lot of time on my hands to, uh, to work on some stuff. So now I make, you know, uh, I don't, I don't do a lot of baking during the summer cause it's just too hot. But in the winter, I, I love making sourdough bread. I like making bread and handing it out to people. It's fun, especially if, awesome. if they're old enough to remember nature's table and what that community was like. You know, yeah. that's like, you know, smells and, and taste are some of the biggest sensory triggers for memory. So being able to give them literally a taste of what it used to be like is, uh, is very important to me. I like that. Well, Sean, thank you for being on the show and telling me all about Shambana jazz and archiving the history of Champagne Urbana jazz performances and nature's table and your early beginnings with you know the grateful dead and i i don't know it's it's interesting to have this sense of history that w are my prehistory because i came here in 99 so mm -hmm. there's this there's definitely this backlog of information that i need to assimilate into myself and so i love hearing the old stories of what champagne urbana used to be like and i appreciate you coming all the way out here and being on the show thank oh. you so much well thanks for having me on the show you know if anybody out there has any recordings that were made of jazz here in town of you know any vintage or if you have any recordings that might have been made at nature's table I would really like to hear from you because obviously I can't collect all of this stuff myself. You can reach out to me at Sean S E A N at shambanajazz.com. If you have any recordings or if you know somebody who does, I would love to hear from you. And if you see somebody at the Rose bowl set up uh, with a bunch of microphones, come by and say, hello. I'd be happy to talk with you about Shambana jazz there too. Thank you for listening to Champagne is also a band podcast. This is Sean Kutzko reminding you great music is out there. Go find it where you live.
that's a wrap. Champagne is also a band. You almost have an NPR voice. It's so good. <laughs> <laughs> studio. South Beaker on the inside.